0: Hey, I'm Jacob Lewis. You are listening to Neighbors. Have you ever thought you'd worked fully through something? A childhood trauma, a heartbreak, a betrayal? You've written about it, maybe talked it through with a therapist, and you felt so satisfied. You came out clean on the other side, unburdened from all that garbage and ready to live your life. But then one morning, you get a text from your ex. Or maybe you notice that the leaves are changing color, and you remember what happened in the fall 10 years ago. All of a sudden, you're in a spiral where your emotions are uncontrollable. You thought you were free from this power, but instead, today, it owns you. And everything is colored by the tyranny of trauma. That's what this story is about, the tyranny of trauma. And that's important to remember as you hear everything that's being said. Because what follows is true in one sense, but filtered through one character's trauma-affected lens. A person who also ultimately courageously owns that lens, I might add. And that person is this guy. And I'm not going to make as
1: much eye contact as I normally would. I can talk about it. is that okay? Or should I be looking at you? <laughs> Just do
0: you, man. This is Joel.
1: Um, my name is uh, Joel Rice.
0: Uh, he's kind of nervous because he's normally the kind of guy that sits behind a computer and thinks about what he's going to say. I'm a writer. And to me, he looks like a writer. He's tall and lanky, loose fitting khaki pants, collared white shirt. He's got a salt and pepper mop top. He looks professional, yet slightly disheveled like a preoccupied professor. Which was kind of the vibe growing up in his house. So you mentioned San Francisco yeah. is where you grew up. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a very uh, bookish, you know, bookish home. That came with a certain sort of academic self-understanding. But Joel uses his intellectual talents to write about something I find a little surprising. The one topic he loves more than almost anything else in the world. I fell in love with skateboarding from the minute I saw it. It was truly love at first sight. He was eight years old, living in San Francisco, and right in front of his house, he saw something that captured him. There were three kids um, riding,
1: it's called butt boarding, they were riding down the hill just riding skateboards like a sled. These kids were just
0: bombing this huge San Francisco hill, bustling with traffic. Have you been to San Francisco? No, but I have well, I've seen a full house, so it just seems You're steep. Right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's literally like a busy street in Brooklyn or East Nashville. Like, it was crazy.
0: Weaving through cars, these kids were having the time of their lives. Their hair was whipping in the wind. They were screaming like you do on a roller coaster. They were throwing all caution aside. And to Joel, that was incredibly appealing. Is it like this reckless abandon that you long for or something? Yeah, very much so. I mean, just the physicality of it, the,
1: the sound of it was just truly love at first sight. Um, I fell in love with it then,
0: and I never quite fell out of love with it. Joel got wrapped up in the burgeoning skate culture of the late 80s. The rock star of that era was a guy named Christian Hosoi. He would skate empty pools shirtless with his long black hair. At places like Golden Gate Park, kids would imitate him by jumping off of ramps in neon shorts and sunglasses. Every possible iteration of neon. Krishna Asoy and those kids, they all seemed to be a further iteration of those guys he saw butt-boarding in front of his house. They moved through the world with an ease, free and alive. Joel was anxious and wanted whatever it was they had. So he started skating. He spent six years on a board. Years that Joel describes, and I'm quoting here, as the happiest times of my life. But then, the dog trap happened.
1: And in the heart of city Slickersville, the plaza, Embarcadero, EMB, skateboard mecca. Kids, if you really wanna get hip with what's up in skateboarding, come to EMB and this can all be yours.
0: This is a clip from a UK show called High Five. They came all the way to San Francisco to showcase a place called Embarcadero. It was a concrete plaza with a series of stairs and gaps perfect for jumps and tricks. Joel lived right by it and wanted nothing more than to be a professional skateboarder. I mean, he spent four to five nights a week down at EMB trying to get good enough to go pro.
1: As a 15-year-old, you know, hundreds of kids would pour into this plaza and then there were people who you would think of as kind of the leading lights or the skate stars of their day, like Mike Carroll, Henry Sanchez, Giovanni Turner, um, who I absolutely fanned out on. Like, you would just be like, literally, like seeing Jordan, Michael Jordan, like, play pickup games. So your mind, you would just be like, oh,
0: my God, yeah. man, I can't believe they're here. The other thing you need to know is that Embarcadero could be a little rough. Fist fights were a regular thing, and there was a pretty established hierarchy amongst skaters. Joel was close to the bottom. One day, he was down at EMB and wanted to buy a board someone else was selling. He didn't have any money, so he asked a fellow skater. His name was Jacques. Can I please, 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 please borrow 20 bucks?
1: I said, I'll give you two baseball hats. So he said, okay.
0: Joel bought the board, but the understanding was this wasn't a trade with Jacques. He was supposed to pay him back. Two weeks later, Joel's at Embarcadero again. This time, he has his younger brother with him. He's responsible for his well-being at the park. Jacques, the guy who loaned Joel the money, skates up and asks for it back. But Joel didn't have it. So Jacques starts yelling at him, causing a scene. He pulls back his skateboard as if he was going to hit Joel.
1: Where's my money? Give me my money. And I was totally, totally petrified that because there was a violent edge there, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get mugged in front of my brother.
0: Since Joel didn't have any money, Jacques was going to take whatever he wanted especially Joel's dignity. So he took both our bus passes. Joel was mortified. He wanted skateboarding to give him courage, ease, confidence. Instead, it shook him down. And what's worse, several of the pro skaters he idolized just stood there, watching.
1: I was just totally humiliated, like, what just happened? But my
0: humiliation didn't end there. Flustered and embarrassed, Joel skated off. And that is when he hit the dog trap. The word dog trap has a cruel history. Outsiders at EMB were called the very derogatory name Tard Dogs. That was then shortened to T-Dogs. And there were two places on the plaza that regulars knew to avoid, but T-Dogs didn't. They were called dog traps. One was a crack in the pavement that was just easy to biff on. But another was a little sneakier.
1: It was a metal plate that would... Um, pop up as you skated over it. Now I knew this, however, I was so flustered that I'd forgotten it was there. So not having just been mugged with my my little brother in tow, I hit it and I literally fell on my face (laughs) in front of a crew of the most iconic skaters of the time.
0: This was a defining moment in Joel's childhood. Instead of going back and facing Jacques, asserting himself and retaining some kind of dignity, he just stopped going. He stopped trying to be a pro skater. His dream had died. And in some sense, from that day on, inside his own head, he just lay there, on the ground, laughed at, and humiliated. I'm Jacob Lewis, and from Nashville Public Radio, you're listening to Neighbors, a show about what connects us. Today's story, The Dog Trap. As an adult, Joel gets another chance at being accepted into skateboarding, this time by one of his all-time skating heroes. But just like that day at Embarcadero, it does not go how he'd hoped.
1: Hey, Jacob. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Great to see you. Thank you so much for coming too. out. Yeah. Just... Oh, yellow. Yeah, I know. I
0: like it. I'm at Joel's house. His entryway is really Welcome. yellow. Welcome. In the kitchen, he and his wife have kindly set out a platter of about 40 pieces of bruschetta. Good to see you can see Tell your name again? Morgan. Morgan. Yeah. Joel and I sit down in a living room surrounded by decorative plates and some lovely paintings Morgan made. It feels like a kind of a high art kind of house. <laughs> we like. start eating bruschetta. And talking. Um, tell me what you do, what your life is. I wanted to know how we got from the dog trap to having a regular skateboarding column for McSweeney's, the literary journal founded by writer and editor Dave Eggers. Well, this sounds very
1: pretentious, but I met David Foster Wallace
0: when I was a senior at Kenyon College. David Foster Wallace was an influential writer who wrote that giant tome called Infinite Jest. Joel followed David around all day. Only because
1: I was a senior, insecure English major type, who just was decided, like, until he tells me to stop, I'm going to fall around. (laughs) So I tried to do it relatively tastefully, but I literally sat right next to him, so I spent about six to seven hours with him.
0: Joel soaked up everything about that day. Then, in 2008, David Foster Wallace passed away. McSweeney's asked for submissions in his remembrance. Joel wrote about his time with him. He submitted it, and McSweeney's included it. When they asked what else he could write about... The answer was clear. I've wanted to write about skateboarding my whole life, and they had given me the opportunity to start doing that. He was given a regular column called Flip. He interviewed famous skaters, wrote about skate culture, and his third interview for the column was with one of his all-time heroes, the guy I mentioned in the beginning, the rock star, the shirtless, long-haired pool skater known as Christian Hesoi. Moving right along, let's find out what's on the mind of Christian Hesoi. Hey, Christian, what's up? How's it going, Taters? Good, good. How you doing? All right. This is a clip from a Nickelodeon show in the 90s called Skate TV. A guy named Skate Master Tate is interviewing an early 20-something Christian Assoy, They're standing in a pool covered in street art. Christian, are there a lot more top contenders than there used to be? Oh, there's a lot more top contenders nowadays, and they're getting younger because the generations are changing just like when... We
1: started skating amateurs and turning pro. We were the younger generation, me and Tony Hawk. The so first time I saw him was in a magazine. Fell in love like everybody else. I was about 10 or 11 when he was kind of in his pinnacle.
0: In the late 80s and early 90s, Christian was the vert skater. That meant skating ramps, but he did it with more flair and style than anyone else on the scene. He was a kind of magnetic sex symbol, hitting the L.A. club scene before he was even legally allowed inside. His nickname was Christ, and he invented a trick called the Christ Air, where you grab your board from under your feet, hold your arms and legs out like you're on a cross. He started his own skate company, and at one point was making $30,000 a month. He lived in W.C. Fields' old estate and threw massive parties. But then, in the early 90s, right around the time of this Nickelodeon interview, Skate culture saw a dramatic and quick change. It went from surf kids in neon shorts skating pools in Southern California to more punkish kids street skating in baggy pants in places like Embarcadero. Tony Hawk, another well-known skater at the time and one of Hosoi's competitive rivals, handled this transition well. But Hasoy, not so much. Here's a clip from a phone interview Joel did with Tony Hawk about Christian during that time. Clearly he was doing a lot of drugs kind of presenting himself as if he, he's a man, and, and he was gone. His skating was was really falling off, and that, that was the hardest part for me to see. Then, in the year 2000, Hisoi got busted in a Honolulu airport with a pound and a half of crystal meth in his fanny pack. He went to prison. In one interview I saw, he said that when he got there, he didn't feel like he'd be able to make it on the inside. But then his girlfriend told him that God was going to take care of him. Inside he found a Bible and opened it to the Book of Kings. He said he felt like he could relate to the story of a king and his kingdom, having it all and then falling from grace. He became a Christian. Someone told him that God had a plan for his life. So when he finally got out, he started doing evangelical extreme sporting events with the actor Stephen Baldwin. He would skate and then tell the crowd his life story. The king of skateboarding, rock and roll lifestyle, prison, and his conversion. About a week after Joel's article about Christian was published in McSweeney's, he got a once in a lifetime email. That email led to a once in a lifetime phone call. It was with one of the largest publishing companies in the country, HarperCollins. Someone there had read Joel's article, they thought Christian's story would make a good book. They asked Joel to put together a book proposal to ghost-write Christian Hosoi's memoir.
1: It was so cinematic. It was just like you write something and then some very powerful editor calls you and is like, yeah, we like that. Let's start talking. I lost my mind. Like, I was so high. Drug-free, but high as a kite.
0: When Joel was little, his dream was becoming a professional skateboarder. As an adult, this offer was basically the equivalent writing a book for a top-tier publisher about one of his heroes who has an amazing story. There was just one problem. Joel had developed a kind of love-hate relationship with Hosoi. Joel says Christian made him laugh. He was affable, charismatic, and larger than life. But everything that made Hosoi likable also made him challenging to work with. Hosoi is very,
1: very hard to get on the phone. I had interviewed him for four hours when the column was published. I had two reactions, which is, I love Hosoi. I'm really glad I never have to call him again because it's really, really difficult.
0: But now Joel was calling Christian again to wade into the waters of a new and much bigger project. This is one key point for the
1: story is uncharacteristically, I called his soy. He called me uncharacteristically right back and he was like, what's going on? And I told him what had just happened. And I said, uh, you know, editor thinking about wanting to do your memoir, what would you think about that?" he went, That'd be rad.
0: For Joel, that was the rad heard around the world. The start of the most exciting and stressful time of his life. And I want to point out to you that Joel has a very literary mind. He thinks in characters, motivations, plot, and setting. He sees symbolism everywhere. And in turn, that affects how he reflects back on certain experiences. Joel had just gotten engaged to his girlfriend. Christian comes into his life, and then he gets asked to write a book proposal. In prison, Christian was told that God has a plan for his life. Joel thought the synchronicity of all these events was a similar thing. God had a plan for his life. But it seemed like a hard one.
1: You have to go through a Byzantine, Labyrinthian, maze-like process to get a hold of him. So what I mean by that is his phone habits are extremely erratic. So that is a constant, constant stress. And I know it sounds small in the grand scheme of things, but it's like, let me say it this way. Um, He took a baby into a meth lab. He brought a 1.5 pounds of meth in a fanny pack on a plane. He spent, I believe four and a half years incarcerated and he has very poor phone etiquette. <laughs> it
0: makes sense. There would be a correlation. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was a source of constant stress. Mm-hmm. I really like to prepare I really like to know when the interview is. Most people are like that, but it's even more important to me because of, you know, what is my biggest flaw. I don't handle that kind of pressure well. The way I handle it is by having it relatively organized.
0: But here's the thing. When he did get Christian on the phone, it was magic. He was funny, colorful, and full of stories that made for one heck of a book.
1: Could you describe with a little detail um, meeting Jennifer for the first time? Yeah, she's sitting right next to me right now.
0: Christian ended up marrying a former exotic dancer named Jennifer.
1: How did uh we meet for the first time? She was looking through her friend's uh, photo album, and she just moved in with her. She invited her friend to move in with her, and she had a picture of me in her photo album. And she saw it. I was blowing like a crystal meth smoke ring <laughs> in the photo. <laughs> And she's like, I wanna meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And then I came over and I never left and we We've been stuck at the hip hunting.
0: With little gems like that, Joel was excited. He finally got enough material to submit a book proposal and he got a response. It was strong, but they said it had words like sick and rad too many times. Joel toned the dialect down a bit and resubmitted. It was approved. Then came an official offer. This was a dream come true for Joel, and in his mind, this was as good as a deal could get. The right story, the right publisher, the right time, and he was writing it. But Joel says Christian didn't seem to see it the same way. He wanted to see if there were other bigger publishers that wanted his story. Joel was worried that by searching elsewhere, they'd lose the opportunity they already had. He spoke to soy constantly over the next month, trying to get him to accept the offer and sign, but with no luck. Christian just kept dragging his feet. Joel felt like he needed to get Christian an agent, someone who could speak to Christian in terms he would understand. Because I did not think I could convince him to do it.
1: I, like, literally needed it the way a social worker, like, I needed, like, a social worker to get this person to sober and... Wait, was he Was he on drugs? He wasn't, but I would use the phrase of he just was so grandiose, mm-hmm. so mercurial. So he, so for instance, I talked to a literary agent. I said, you know, he's very difficult, but like this is a good thing. We got to kind of convince him. This is a good thing. Kind of get him to kind of come down to earth. Can you help me? This is really important. And this is what I, this is the love hate. Okay, so he blew off the call. She wrote back to me and said, I don't think he's committed to this book. Who would do that? And I tried to explain to her he will do that. He wrote her back 24 hours later, and she said, "I'm never working with him ever." She wrote. He wrote wrote her back 24 hours later by email and said, "Hey, sir, I missed you. I was getting my haircut." <laughs> I think that's funny, you know. He was like, "I'm getting my haircut." So he had this weird charm of like, "Man, like, are you? Wh- what are you doing?" You know. So he had no sense of where
0: the publisher was in the sort of literary firmament. Joel says he went through four or five agents that either Christian flat-out said no to, or he missed their phone calls and never got back to them. It didn't look like this was going to work. Well, find out the strange thing that, according to Joel, finally did push Christian over the edge after the break. I'll give you a hint. It involves Tony Hawk. Kind of. Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder, as we get deeper into the story, what follows is exclusively Joel's version of what happened. And when we left off, Joel was saying Christian wasn't being reliable to any agent he set him up with. This reality of not being able to get Christian to follow a timetable was actually well known. It even had a name. Joel interviewed Tony Hawk for the book. Christian used to behave similarly when they would tour together. Uh, Well, if you travel with Christian, you're always on Christian time which means, like, anywhere from a half hour to two hours late for everything. Um, And you're waiting for him to get ready, you're waiting for him to get out of his room, you're waiting for him on the ramp. (laughs) It was all just his own time frame. Christian wasn't signing the contract, and time was running out. The publisher sent Joel an email saying Christian had to sign in seven days or the offer was off the table. Joel panicked. How would he get him to accept this offer? Joel tried to think of what was keeping Asoy from committing, and in his mind, it came down to one thing. He
1: was fixated on Hawk. He said, quote, What did Tony get? What did Tony get? Like he, meaning, meaning, meaning what? Meaning, my advance needs to be equal or
0: higher than Tony's. Back in the day, Tony Hawk and Christian Asoy were supposed rivals. Christian was the cool writer with a loose, free-flowing style. Tony kind of looked nerdy and stiff, but technically was a master, stringing together more tricks than anyone else. Tony had just recently come out with a memoir of his own.
1: The way he said it suggested deep preoccupation. Like, it was, what he was thinking is, my, the most impo- like what he was really focused on was not, how do we negotiate, what does this mean, who's the editor, what did Tony get? Like, that's what he was thinking about.
0: There seemed no way around it. But then, a miracle happened. In Joel's original search for an agent, he had scrawled a bunch of names down on a piece of paper. In a final act of desperation, he cold-called one more person and left a message. A woman called back.
1: I said, hey, you know, um, we've gotten this offer, um, but, uh, you know, he's a little... A little background on him he's a little fixated on Tony Hawk and she just said oh I did that book meaning she literally was the agent for Tony Hawk's memoir hey, Jacob I kid you not I picked her at random <laughs> clouds part, I mean that was the whole like Wordsworth has this phrase the speaking face of heaven and earth and his catchphrase was God has a plan for my life and just the fact that by total coincidence I had been able, kid you not, to find that agent just felt, I literally felt like, to quote Hisoi, like God's hand was on my life because it was that, I, I don't know, it just was, there was a rhythm to the events that like, oh, okay, this is meant to be. Yeah. I really felt like, sincerely, I was like, all right.
0: Joel says the agent ensured Hisoi his advance was bigger and Christian signed the initial contract. Things seemed to be back on track for like a day.
1: Then it got kind of like he got strangely elusive again. And I'm literally on the hook to be like we actually had this is due in you know 6 8 months. Like this this has to be done. There's we we're, we're making a contractual agreement to this be done. And uh, all of a sudden he disappeared again. This is kind of degrading.
0: During that half a year when they were supposed to be actually putting together the book, there was really only one bright spot. Christian was going to be in Georgia doing an event. So Joel drove down from Nashville and interviewed him. You can get a sense of how the two worked together. Joel, somewhat anxious. Christian, a little bored sounding, but willing to participate once he was there.
1: How, how often, let's see, uh, I guess this is a little later. I guess I was thinking kind of early 90s. You got really involved in the club scene. Is that correct? Sort of no, club-y-drew? 83. 83? Big. 83. I was club. break dancing. Oh really? Oh yeah, I didn't. Know you. And all that. Did did all break dancing? Okay. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. Cool. I should develop some questions for that. Anything yeah. you? Anything on the early club scene is really interesting. Yeah, uh, just all those clubs that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's 82, yeah, 83. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of like that. You know, uh, Herbie Hancock. Mm-hmm. All the breakdancing. Yeah. gets till you want to be starting something. Got to be starting
0: something. <laughs> Even though sometimes it was frustrating, soy could make him laugh. But after Georgia, there wasn't much interaction with the soy. Somewhat resigned, Joel began to call other skateboarders to fill up the commentary part of his book. As you've heard, he called Tony Hawk. But with Tony, he got him with one email to his publicist. And Tony and Joel had an hour long conversation. He was majestic, he was generous. There was a sense of spacious freedom.
1: I thought Hawk is the perfect name for him because he just has this soaring kind of zen-like freedom.
0: After that call, Joel realized what this book could have been like. And so he changed how he related to soy. I just said, you know,
1: I'm not gonna, I actually stopped calling him. I was like, you know, this is just not respectful. And in my own weird way, I tried to assert my dignity. Mm And uh, it did harm our relationship, but I think I made the right decision. I said, you know, it, it's just not fair to do this to me. And I've been a hardcore Hawk fan ever since that day. And uh, that was a real turning point in our relationship for what it's worth.
0: Joel had already written about a quarter of the book, but it turns out in the publishing world, there was a second contract that needed signing, the one with more of the specifics, but Asoy hadn't signed it yet.
1: He'd say, I lost the contract. I think I lost it behind the couch.
0: This is getting tiring even for me to tell you about, so I'll just skip to the part where Hisoy finally signed it. He signed it two months before the entire book was supposed to be due. But there was this sense of peace for Joel when that happened. It really felt like when that last contract was buttoned up, everything was actually settled. Joel felt like his big shot was secure. Maybe this could even be a bestseller. And to kind of ride the wave of energy that Hassoy seemed to have when he signed, someone from the publishing side of things had an idea. They thought it would be good to go with Joel to California to talk to Christian. They would all have a celebratory meal and see if they could gather some material and make a final push to finish this book. But that's not what happened. Joel and someone from the publishing company flew to Huntington Beach, California, to meet with Christian. Joel stayed at La Quinta Inn and Suites. That night, in his hotel room, he got a call from another writer friend. It was some strange news. He said Asoy was asking around about Joel at the ESPN X Games. Questions about his credibility as a writer. Joel hung up and went to sleep. The next morning, he goes to the hotel's business center to check his email. He sees one from the same friend who called him last night. It says he thinks he knows what's up. He said someone from Christian's camp reached out to him, seeing if he'd want to write the book instead of Joel. Joel started spinning. He called everyone involved. Joel's dream, his first book about his hero, it all seemed at jeopardy.
1: This so I has <laughs> delayed the contract,
0: delayed the signing,
1: He literally has recently sold his life rights to a publisher. He wouldn't respond to the publisher's calls about where to meet. He texted him and said, hey, I'll text you tomorrow. Like, the person who literally legally owns his life rights could not get him on the phone.
0: The location where Joel would learn his fate and face Christian was sent just before the meeting was supposed to take place, by text message. It was only two words. Cheesecake Factory.
1: Soy showed up. He had recently dyed his hair entirely blonde. We walked in and he was like, Hey, buddy. He saw me. We ordered mahi-mahi on on Hisoy's recommendation. It was delicious. If you ever go to Cheesecake Factory, order mahi-mahi.
0: After some pleasantries, it seemed like Joel's worst fears were slowly being confirmed in the most unpleasant way.
1: So he demanded that I audition for the role of writer and that he said it was going to be like American Idol. He's like, we're going to audition. The other thing he did is ever since I talked to him, he has this very characteristic laugh that is very, um, I mean, he was a math addict a long time. He was in prison, so maniacal. Like, he just has this laugh that sounds like someone's on drugs, like just this barreling wave upon wave, and he literally laughed in my face.
0: That laughter was a big moment for Joel. He had done everything he could to make this work. He endured severe anxiety. He both worshipped and feared his hero. And his hero... Laughed in his face.
1: And he would go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to do Can I do an impression of it? So I laugh.
0: <laughs> it was clear Christian didn't want him to do the book. According to Joel, Christian said he wanted to start from scratch and get three new chapters. And if they blew him away, maybe he'd keep him on. After hearing all of this, Joel's literary mind interpreted it like a movie from his childhood.
1: Have you seen the part in um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where towards the end he gets screamed at? Mm -hmm.
0: He kind of did that. Joel's referring to the trippy 70s Gene Wilder version. In it, Charlie endures all the crazy hardships of touring Wonka's factory, in hopes to win a lifetime supply of chocolate. Every kid's dream. But then in the last scene, remember in that room where everything's cut in half, the desk, the chair... Wonka has an outburst where he screams at Charlie, telling him he gets absolutely nothing. Charlie's grandfather responds in utter disbelief, saying that Wonka's a thief and a swindler. How could you do this, he says, build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces? You're an inhuman monster. Internally, Joel made the same judgment.
1: If you really want to get hip with what's up in skateboarding, Come to EMB and this can all be yours. That'd be rad. I was just totally humiliated, like what just happened. But my humiliation didn't end there. My humiliation didn't end there, but my humiliation didn't end there. Humiliation
0: didn't end there. Joel had hit the dog trap again, shaken down by a skater, humiliated in front of one of his heroes, betrayed and losing all safety in the thing he wanted. When they left, Christian gave Joel a soy brand skateboard and said, God bless. At the John Wayne International Airport in Orange County, Joel threw the skateboard in the garbage, got on a plane, and flew home.
1: And his demand was, I will do this book as long as Joel is not the writer. Wow. That was his one condition. It's probably better if I don't get into every nuance, but basically I demanded as much of a, you know, payment as I could Mm -hmm. and uh, relinquished my my role in it in a very unpleasant... and then on my wife's birthday, I might add.
0: That all was well over half a decade ago. Since then, Joel has been casting Hassoy as the villain in the movie that plays in his head. When he talks about him, he uses polarizing language. He loves Hisoi. He's a legend. Yet Hisoi caused one of the most traumatic events of his life and, like a maniacal, petulant child, stole Joel's dream from him. But I learned that maybe Joel's experience was quite a bit different from Christian's. Hello? Hey, is this Christian? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Next time on Neighbors, Christian Asoy, Joel's response... And then the two of them together in the most unneighborly thing I've ever made to date. No, no, no. Let well, me let I me just say this. No, 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 problem. no, no. But, I have, let I have no. Let me finish. 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 Christian, God.
1: Christian.
0: Don't worry, it works out. <laughs> Neighbors is from Nashville Public Radio and produced by me, Jacob Lewis. Thank you so much for listening. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and it means the world to me that you chose this one to listen to. Please leave a review in iTunes and also let a friend know about the show. I really depend and cherish all word-of-mouth references and I would just think you're awesome for it. show's editors are Emily Seiner, Mac Linebaugh, and Anita Bug. Special thanks to Galen Bb for some additional editing. Production assistance for this episode from Caleb Shiver and Paola Mora. Music in this episode is by Pottington Bear and Tony Gage. Neighbors is a proud and founding member of the audio collective The Herd. Learn more at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D because we're cool like that. As always, I'm Jacob Lewis, and I'm reminding you to get to know your neighbors. Hello, Neighbors listeners. This is Mac Lineball, and I'm one of the editors of this show. If you have any questions about this episode, the show in general, or you're just curious about what Jacob's really like now is a good time to ask that's right mac and i are going to answer your questions two weeks from the release of this episode and we're going to do that right here on this very podcast go to neighborspodcast.com ask the link should be in the show description right where you're listening once you're there you can write out your questions or if you're feeling really adventurous you can record a voice memo and upload it to the forum and we will do our darndest to get it answered in the best way possible and i think we'll all learn something